welcome to 9 to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. And in these very strange times, I'm adding to that balance homeschooling. So most of my guests this fall will be talking about how they manage their time and their sanity doing that along with working and finding time for themselves. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Last week, I said that I was going to talk about averages this week, and I will. But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about context, which I touched on last week. So last week, I talked about the social model of disability. In other words, if your environment is perfectly attuned to you, what kind of a disability do you have? And I actually realized there's even, I I gave some examples that are good, but there's a really great example right in front of our noses. We don't see infrared our universe looks extraordinarily different to us than it does to, say, birds or bugs. But we're not disabled because the way that our world, you know, functions and we function in our world suits us pretty well. We would be very handicapped. We would be disabled in a bug's world or in a bird's world where being able to see the infrared spectrum was critical. So the real difference in all of this is context. And it matters a lot to us because, or it should matter to us a lot, because we are very profoundly affected by our context. You may be fully functional and in a happy, happy place in one context. And then when we put you into another context, you are crippled with shyness but everyone kind of can't believe it you can't believe it of yourself because maybe on stage you have no such qualms you have no such reticence maybe you're phenomenal but take you down and into the audience into some kind of networking event and maybe you're close to non-functional tell me whether that sounds familiar in terms of kids and learning where you can't believe that they are one thing in the school when they're so, so different at home. Context matters. There's also the fact that ADHD in girls presents itself very frequently as chattiness, as a desire for connection, as a nervous thing. There's a lot of reasons for it as sort of a way to organize thoughts, but verbally, physically. Context matters. So if a child is in the backyard learning and talking to themselves or singing little songs, then they will learn through what it is they're doing without affecting anybody else. But in the context of school, they may be told they need to be silent. They may get in trouble. It may appear on their grade record. They, they may ask you to come in and have a meeting about this problem behavior, but it is only a problem in that context. So as homeschoolers, the first thing we really need to be looking at is what kind of a context are we creating? And I talk a lot about learning environments, learning, you know, supporting, supportive learning environments. So that's there. But deeper than that, I'm going to suggest that like for ourselves as human beings, that we look a little bit with a step back at whether our environment is fostering our own learning. Is our environment fostering our own growth, 
are we supported so that we can support the family? That can get very tricky. It can get very tricky when you need to enlist everybody in maintaining a space, for example. Because you may find, as I did, that I am on the ADHD spectrum, and you may find that clutter or chaos or disorganization visually makes you less functional, makes you unhappy, stifles your own learning environment. I know for me, if I am looking for a tool and someone else took it and didn't put it back, I was on a roll. I had time to do this thing. I had intention to do this thing. Frequently, I would even state that I was going to do this thing. And someone had carelessly taken the tool away and just left it somewhere. That could destroy my entire learning plan for me, for the kids. I ended up having a couple of realizations around this. One was I needed to buy a ton of scissors at once and I needed to put them everywhere so that that didn't stop me. And other tools similar to scissors. Scissors will stand in for rulers and other things that I might have to do this with. And even for more expensive tools, I might end up having a couple because I couldn't stand the loss of inspiration, the loss of being on track while I went around and looked for other stuff. And then the other thing was I tried to instill behavior, first of all, in myself, and second of all, in members of my family, because it wasn't always clear to them how much they were derailing another person, and that if if we were going to be cooperative, in other words, if you need me to provide certain kinds of services for you, then in exchange, I request that you do things for me, but let's figure out the ways in which that would be best suited. For example, if it is a really a cognitive problem to put the scissors away, can we put a box somewhere, throw a bunch of stuff in there, and right around dinner time, put it away? That's not going to work for everybody, but it does work. It's not only not going to work for everybody, it's only going to work at certain times in the continuum of a life. So that's another thing I learned, that every time I solved a problem, it was only solved for now. I know I've mentioned before that for a long time I had plastic boxes that were kind of translucent and had a picture of what belonged inside. And when I made those, I spent a weekend doing it and I felt so accomplished. I felt like I had solved a problem. And now looking back, I see that as very naive about how people grow and how people live together. It solved an immediate problem and eventually we evolved out of it. Things didn't fit in that anymore or maybe this didn't work but that did but it did address the problem for a number of years. But now when I make this kind of systemic solution I would rather review it again in a year. I'd rather have like a calendar alert that says can we talk about whether this is working for us or what has to change. And I'd rather build that regularly into reviewing the year more actively, because what I end up finding is that when I would put something like this in place and it stopped working, I found that almost unspeakably discouraging. Anyway, on to averages. I also wanted to talk about averages. Talked a little bit about them last time, because 
grades and school are based on averages. And we forget that humans are most decidedly not. No one is average. By definition, no one is average. You might be in the average of one thing. Perhaps you are average height for an American woman right now. But the context of that is hugely multidimensional, and you're leaving all of that out. Are you of average height for your social class? Are you of average height for your ethnicity? Are you of average height for whatever might be your race? Are those averages? And suddenly you're not average. No one's going to be average average on all of those scales. Are you average height for your weight? Does weight even enter into it? So average is a really interesting mathematical concept. It's almost like we decided to take a whole bunch of emotional and social milestones and just apply them against pi and tell everybody unless they got to 4.13, they're useless. Averages don't really tell you anything. They don't help anything. For example, if you are a terrific teacher, if you are a phenomenal teacher of, you know, a dozen, two dozen kids, and those kids on average have very high scores in the tests that you gave, so what, basically? So what? What was the caliber of the material? What were the expectations of the test? Were there people who were able to ace it because they had parental help or they have a social support system that informed them of these things? This comes up really interestingly around the SATs. The SATs were designed so that white boys in the 1960s that were middle class and upper middle class could pass them. They were considered not the average exactly, but the ideal, and every average is compared to that ideal. And here's a brilliant example of how those might fail. You could have a problem on the SATs about baking, baking a cake. If you spent a ton of your time as a kid homeless, you are not going to necessarily have familiarity with a kitchen and how to bake. So you can't even figure out the problem with nothing to hook it to. You have no context. And so are you average? Well, if the question was more about survival as a homeless person, where to sleep, how to figure out safe spaces, you would nail that one. And the kid who was super sheltered would not. So averages don't tell you anything. One of the really interesting things about averages, one of the facts that I love about it is they were, as a mathematical concept, it was really popularized and it may have even been invented under Napoleon. And it became very, very useful to make uniforms based on averages. And the first war that had small, medium, large, average uniforms was the Civil War because you can crank those out. I bet you can walk into a store and find your size 
quite easily or your kid's size quite easily. But you and I both know that having found that size, you must go and try it on. Because no one is average and those clothes don't fit. Not only is no one average and those clothes don't fit, what's the context? Levi's has a different this size than Wrangler does. All the different companies establish for themselves what their sizing are. The only way to get something to fit your body is to have it tailored to your body because nobody's average. Now, physically, this distinction can be a matter of life and death. Because in World War I, when they were first starting to use airplanes for fighter pilots, they designed the cockpit to fit the average man. And because of that, the Air Force, the very newly developed Air Force, spent all its time trying to enlist men that had these proportions. And flying, not just fighting in the air, but flying was deadly because the cockpit didn't fit any of them because there is no average man. And only when they started to make the adjustable seat did flying become something that other people could do. Averages really are a life and death situation. But the other thing is, if you are immersed in a system where the average tells you whether you are good enough, whether you will succeed in this life, whether you are pleasing the adults around you, or whether you are displeasing them and should therefore be ashamed of yourself, I would argue that's life and death as well. Next up, I'll be talking with my guest, Allie Wicks Lim, an activist and community organizer who balances her extensive justice work with homeschooling. Today is Allie Wicks Lim, a homeschooler and what would you say, community organizer? Yeah, activist. Community activist and organizer. And we're going to talk about how she balances those things and the rest of her busy life in in terms of actually educating her children as well. So thank you for coming today, Allie. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So what is the age of your child or children? Uh, so I have a 15-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. Okay. And how long have you been homeschooling them? I've been homeschooling my 15-year-old son since he was in third grade, so nine. And uh, my daughter has never gone to school. She's been homeschooled from the start. Okay. Great. Great. So uh, give me an idea of how you do the time management piece. Yeah. So, you know, different different projects that I'm involved in require different amounts of time. And what I try to do is really focus on concentrated time when I have it so that when I'm not available for a while, the kids have that foundation behind them and can really get engaged in their own work, you know, without me as much. And honestly, a lot of it is, is juggling. Like I will schedule, I will schedule a a zoom meeting or a call knowing that I need to do a lesson prior to that so that my kids can be engaged in doing work on their own during that call. And it's not a perfect science. Sometimes they have questions and they get stuck. And when I get off the call, I realize that it hasn't, um, it hasn't 
come together the way I thought. And, you know, we have to start back at the beginning, but other times it doesn't work out as planned and I'm on a phone meeting and my kids are making noise. Um, <laughs> but I think that they're headed off to do their own thing now. And, uh, and yeah, so for me, it's a lot of trying to be proactive about the times when I really need space and time versus times when I can be more flexible. Uh-huh. Okay. And then what would you say, what kind of style do you use for homeschooling? Do you project-based? Do you use a curriculum? Do you unschool? What do you do? We're kind of a, a mix. So we, I don't have one packaged curriculum that covers everything. We don't do what I would call like school at home where we're trying to do, a, you know, six or seven hour school day, eight to four, you know, like all day long, every day. So we have, we build a lot of flexibility in, but for a couple of subjects, I do buy subject specific curriculum. And for us, that's, you know, math and then a language arts curriculum that I I use to give me kind of a framework so that I'm not having to look for all of the pieces and pull them together. So once I kind of look at those as the basics and those, those guidelines help me make sure I'm covering roughly what I would need to cover. And then beyond that, it's really project-based, experience-based, interest-based learning. So for example, I was just explaining to a friend the other day who's a new homeschooler, you know, she was saying, what do you do for geography class? And I was saying, we don't have a geography class. When we're, when we're learning about history, we're learning about geography. When we're learning about you know, social studies and different cultures and different time periods and, and people's experiences, we're learning about geography. When we watch a documentary or a movie or we're reading a book, we're learning about geography. It's something mm-hmm. that's brought into everything we, we do as opposed to being explored as a totally separate subject of its own mm. away from So a lot of my approach is really about integrating uh, learning into everything we do as opposed to looking at life as one thing and education as something else. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And how does that work in terms of what the kids come up with to do or do you come up with it? How do you, how do you figure out what, what you're going to do next? So a lot of times that comes from an interest that the kids express, and then I can, you know, expand on that interest. Um, It's a little bit different, you know, with a 15 year old, he would be in 10th grade right now. So he he's doing some he's supplementing his homeschooling with classes, dual enrollment classes at a community college. So often, you know, he he's looking to learn more about something that they touched on in a class at school, and we can we can do that. But for example, last spring, you know, when we discovered that we were home with the COVID <laughs> um, pandemic and we, we had a lot of extra time, um, my daughter asked something about uh, Black history and was curious about the Civil War. And I realized that, you know, going, going all the way back <laughs> um, was not something I had done in terms of U.S. history, it was not something I had done with my son either. He learned a ton about the civil rights movement. He'd learned a lot about more recent history, Hmm. but we decided as a family to just go way back to slavery and to the civil war. And interestingly, that was something that we could do with both ages in different ways at the same time. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so we kind of did a deep dive through the spring and summer into that topic and, you know, all the way up through present. And it ended up being a really important way to frame the uprising that we're seeing in the country right now and you know what's going on with with the black lives matter movement and the foundation of the relationship between the police and the black community right 
I didn't want that to all be happening in a vacuum for them. I wanted to have, I wanted to put in the time so that they understood that history. And it was, it came from a question that my daughter asked and it became months of studying together. Yeah. 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 And where did you, like, what was, what was the way to find resources for that? So a lot of times, I mean, the internet is a great resource. I will go on certain social media sites. Like there's one I like, secular, eclectic, academic homeschoolers. And you can, you know, type in anything about like, we're curious about civil war history. We're curious about this person or that person. And people pop up with great ideas if they've already done studies we like Howard Zinn's books. And so I checked okay. out the Zinn Institute online and the Zinn Institute had all of these amazing webinars and seminars that were free throughout the summer. And we wow. did, we, yeah, we did these incredibly, incredible weekly seminars with these like leaders and educators. And there's really so much out there. I mean, I think a lot of times mm-hmm. people are worried about how are they going to find the resources and afford them. Right. And a lot of free, there's a lot of free stuff. The webinars were free. The, you know, library is probably our one number one resource. A lot of times when people ask me, like, what is the one thing you have to have as a homeschooler? (laughs) I'd say a library card. Like I don't, I couldn't do this without a library card. Yeah. But I think for me, it's less of a problem of finding resources and more of a problem of narrowing them down so that we're not overwhelmed by, you know, what's out there. And also just, talking to people, talking to like, if, if you have uh, experience and for example, on those webinars, a lot of the people who spoke on them were authors. So then you go to the ah. library, find their book. Like I liked what this person had to say. Let's see what else they've written documentaries. You know, we, we got involved with canopy, which is a, a online resource for documentaries and independent films that oh. you can, often with a library card, you can tap into to Canopy and watch these incredible films covering all kinds of things. Or uh, we use Common Sense Media to like look up films films recommended by people within the Black Lives Matter movement. And we work our way through that list. There's just a lot of sharing of information out there. That is very interesting. Yeah. That is very interesting. And, and actually, I, I love this too, because when I was homeschooling, I was also doing a freelance job for a professor of African-American studies and she said something about, she kind of she said, look, I'm just telling you, if you could like cover this in the months other than February, like that'd yeah. be great. <laughs> I remember thinking, yeah, how weird, how yeah. weird to be like, well, 11 months are white, but you get one month to be a historically interesting, like, no, that is not like, it's a time period. We should be talking about notable figures in any given time period. Exactly, And I feel that way about all topics, right? Like I refuse to look at women's history as a subject, like women's history is called history. Women have always been there. What were they doing? Like, let's talk about that. What have they been up to? What roles did they play? And sometimes the conversation is, you know, we read this whole book. Why didn't it talk about this woman? Why didn't like, here's, here's what this, so sometimes the work behind the scenes for me, if I know that, you know, I'm sharing a resource with my kids where the information is somewhat whitewashed or the women are not given enough centering in the story. It's not that I won't share that resource. It's that I'll share it and then specifically point out to them. Yeah. You know, what's missing from this story? Like who's missing from this story and then go looking for that information. And I think that that's, 
for me, I love that that's part of the lesson. Like not always what are you learning, but who's not in this story and why. Yeah. So. Yeah. That is really interesting. And I took a class when I was uh, years ago, I worked at the UMass library and I was always taking classes because it was just a, you know, receptionist style job. So I always wanted to do fun classes. And um, I took a, like a public history class and that was like the history of objects too. And a lot of times they were finding exactly that, that, that when you ask, why are these people not heard? It's because it was hard to find written sources. So then these guys were looking into textiles and looking into, Mm. you know, hope chests and being like, where, where are women's experiences written that are not in, in words, but are primary sources. And I was like, Oh, mind blown. Yeah. That's amazing. That's (laughs) awesome. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the, that's the thing is it's often one thing I love about homeschooling is that it gives you the freedom to, to make time for that conversation. Right. And to make, for the, you know, this isn't in a book. This is where you have to look for this information. So I do think that there's, there's no shortage of information and resources out there. And the older a kid gets, the more they can be involved in choosing what's, what's a good resource and what isn't, you know, like mm. you, what are primary sources, but also not every website is actually fact-based and informative. So you can't, <laughs> You know, you can't Google a question and, and, and guarantee that the answer you're getting is objective. Right. Yeah, or a book for that matter. Like, you know, you, you I, I enjoy making that part of the conversation too. Like what resources are we using? Whose voices are included in those resources? And, you know, how do we know? Sometimes I'll ask my kids, like, how do we know that we can trust this information? Right. And it's not, it's not a question that there's a right or wrong answer to all the time. Sometimes it's just whose voice is it in? I remember once realizing that I had gotten through to my daughter, I think she was eight, and we were in the library, and there was a book that was about the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, she's been at a a lot of actions and rallies and vigils around that, so I thought the book would be interesting to her, and I asked her if she wanted to check it out, and she asked me, well, was the author Black? Mm. And I thought, like, nice, nice that she thought to ask that question. And I, you know, I asked her for more information. She said, if it's a Black Lives Matter book, I want to make sure it's, it's through the voice of a Black Lives Matter person or a, a person who's Black, at least. Yeah. And, um, and I, you know, sometimes you don't realize until a moment like that, that something has gotten through, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, hard. it's not, it's not really up on an assessment, necessarily. No, there's no test that says, <laughs> does your child look for lived experience in their source material, right? <laughs> that's not out there, but it's so important. It's, I love that they're asking those questions. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned community college. How young can a kid go to community college? So I don't know if this is everywhere or just our local community college, but for our local community college, if you're what they call a dual enrollment student, which means you're not fully matriculated, but you're, you're a dual enrollment either now that can mean you're a high school student enrolled in a high school taking a college class or as a homeschooler, you can be in dual enrollment. Um, my son started at 14 and the, the, they had placement tests that people needed to take and they weren't like testing in or out. They were just testing for placement. Okay. What level classes are okay? Are you ready to take college level math classes? And if you test you know, under a certain point, you might have to take a not for credit class to prepare you for the credit classes. But mm-hmm. you know, the idea is just that they want to know where you're beginning. 
we hadn't tried when he was younger than 14, but they they were fine with him starting at 14. Oh, that's that's very interesting. What a huge, what a fantastic resource. It's been incredible for him. And especially, you know, with the pandemic, his classes switched to online, but this allows him the opportunity, like while some of his friends who are in high school are kind of struggling with virtual learning through high school, you know, he feels really good about the fact that he's building college credit and mm. enjoying his classes and able to do it from home. He misses going onto the campus, and, you yeah. know, like we all miss going places. <laughs> <laughs> so he was taking them in person last year. Yeah. Okay. He was taking them in person right up until the campus shut down and they moved everything virtual. Okay. And, you know, so a lot of it has to do with knowing your kid and are they ready to be dropped off at a college class? And, you know, when he first started at 14, I would drop him off when the class started and sort of be there when it ended to get him. Mm -hmm. um, just He's 14. <laughs> and, uh, and then, you know, this last year, he was enjoying like building his schedule. So he had a break and could go to the library and work for a while or get a snack and work in the cafe. And it's a nice way, like sometimes homeschooled kids his age are looking for a little bit of independence and looking to feel like they have a little bit of, you know, their own world. And it was a nice way for him to feel that within the container of not being in school full time. Mm. Mm. If you're just joining us, this is Nine to Thrive, a show about work plus community plus creativity. And I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. We're talking right now with Allie Wicks-Lynn an activist and homeschooler. What do you worry about? Hmm. You mean in terms of homeschooling? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not at the macro level. <laughs> we don't have time to talk about the elections right now. Climate, climate disaster. <laughs> in terms of homeschooling, like I've always been aware that there is some privilege inherent in the ability to to educate at home and I think that you know so part of me worries about my own responsibility in terms of what I do for the larger world around trying to compensate for the fact that you know we are exercising the privilege of educating at home and and we also make a lot of sacrifices to make that happen you know we're not we're not an affluent family. We, when we take vacations, we camp. <laughs> like we're 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 making decisions to prioritize that. But even having that option in front of us is is a, a privilege that we're lucky to have. In terms of the kids, I'm always aware that something could shift in our lives where I would, you know, not be able to continue to homeschool. And if that happened, I want them to be in a place where they could comfortably, confidently go to school if they needed to, or mm. even if they chose to. So, you know, I never take for granted that they want to keep homeschooling. Every every summer we have a conversation about this is the grade that you would be going into. These are your options. Do you want to try school? Would you prefer to keep homeschooling? And, you know, they really like homeschooling. So they've always wanted to stay with that. But I've never wanted to be in the position where if one of them said, no, I want to try school, I would feel like they weren't prepared. So uh I was wondering about that. We used to call that the pros and cons meeting in August. Yes. And yeah. I, and, and I remember thinking, actually, all we're asking is which one sucks the least. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> what is the 
thing you can live with. (laughs) So for me, like I've never wanted to, like I said in the beginning, I've never wanted to recreate school at home. I mean, there's a reason that we haven't chosen a traditional school environment. I don't, you know, I don't want them to do six 45 minute blocks in a day of different subjects and push through their education that way. But I do want to make sure that they're, you know, at a level where if they needed to rejoin, they could. So I think about that. And beyond that, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's all the myths about homeschooling, right? There's all the myths about socialization. I don't worry about socialization at all. My kids have, you know, people in their lives of all ages. They relate to people of all ages. They don't view adults as an adversary. They like taking care of younger children. They have peers. I actually love that model of socialization as opposed to hanging out with kids their age all day, every day. Yeah. But, you know, it really just comes down to if we were not able to maintain this or they didn't want to do this, what would that look like? Yeah. They'd be prepared for that. How much of your time is in a day is like focused on instruction? And I mean, I say that, but even as I say it, I know when I was doing it, there were times where we just decided math was going to be, you know, all day on Tuesdays because no one wanted to spend the rest of the week doing it. (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's very fluid for us depending on how we're doing it like I said we don't do six subjects in a day Mm. um I I learned very early on in homeschooling that it does not take a six or a seven hour day to educate children yeah I think that one thing I realized when my son left school he was in public school till halfway through third grade was just how much of his day was focused on classroom management and you know, helping somebody who needed help catching up or waiting for somebody to get into line or waiting for the classroom to quiet down so the teacher could start talking. Because all of a sudden, you know, I'm homeschooling this kid. And really, you know, in third grade, if we were doing three hours of work work in a day, we were fine. Like he was fine. And it was and I'm, when I say work, work, I mean, like, were we working on reading? Were we working on math? Were we learning about some part of history? Because, you know, I don't include in that time, time that he was at Kung Fu or time that he was doing music lessons or, you know, whatever. Right. But I, I think that part of it is just a mindset for homeschoolers that, you know, it's not, I don't necessarily differentiate between learning time and not learning time. Ah, I do look, yeah. at, look at like... I do look at, I need to sit down in a focused way and study this with them so that they have help. Yeah. But I also, you know, if I'm, if I'm baking, if I'm right. cooking a meal, with them, if I'm, you know, one thing I love about our homeschooling is it gives us a lot of opportunity to, to be engaged in social justice work and activism. So there might be, you know, a week where we spend a lot of time at home learning and there might be a week where we go to Washington, DC and we're in the Capitol and the kids are in and out of senators' offices. And last year, one day, they spent their day at a Ways and Means hearing. About oh, wow. And uh, I look at it and I think, so would people call that, like if they were in school, would that be called a day off? Because I feel like they learned a whole lot that day. And so I think that I look at life and school as very, very intertwined. It, it's so funny you should say that because it reminds me, I just, it just made me flash back to a conversation I had with an old friend years ago. Her husband was about to go on sabbatical and she was kind of fretting aloud 
about her daughter missing six weeks of school if they went on the sabbatical. And I was like, what is the sabbatical? And she goes, well, see, that's why it's so tempting. It would be six weeks in Italy. And I was like, what is she going to do in middle school that will be anywhere near as educational? Right. As exploring Italy for six weeks, like to me, I just thought, how is it giving you even yeah. a nanosecond of pause? Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, one of the things, there were several signs that told me that like school was not going to be the best option for us. But I remember one of them when my son was in second grade, uh, my partner had a conference in DC, Washington, DC. And so we had the opportunity to go there and stay in a hotel for I think three or four days and, um, you know, take advantage of what the city has to offer. And he had been learning about the Hopi Indians in second grade. Yeah. And I did some research and, you know, there's the Smithsonian American Indian Museum. Beautiful museum. Yeah. You know, I was so excited. And I said to his teacher, like, we're going to, he's going to miss school that week for a few days, but you know, we're going to go to this museum and he's going to make a scrapbook. And this is the, you know, I was already trying to homeschool, <laughs> but I, I was all excited about all this. And his teacher was really discouraging. His teacher was like, well, you know, he's going to miss out. He's going to come back and he's going to be behind. He's going to miss out on our classroom discussions. Like to the point that when we came back and Mason had the scrapbook to show his class, the teacher was like, well, we don't have time for that. Ugh. I thought, so it was a similar thing to what you were just describing. Yeah. I thought, what would he have learned in his crowded, hot classroom, hearing from a white teacher about, you know, the history of the Hopi Indians Yeah, that is more valuable than being in a museum centered entirely around that experience, looking at artifacts, participating in hands-on activities, listening to oral history on the videos. Like, all I could think was, you know, you're never going to convince me that this isn't a more valuable way to learn. And I, I kind of developed this mentality around that time of like life over school, right? Mm. Like school is important. Education is important. Learning is, is important, but learning is everywhere. Right. And when I have to choose between structured school versus a life experience that, that teaches something similar and valuable, I, I choose life. Well, yeah. And actually, it's very interesting because, you know, I asked you what you were worried about just because there's a universality and what we're worried about. We're always worried about screwing up our kids. And we're always given messages that every single tiny thing we do is going to be fatal. But but it's especially interesting to think about how homeschooling has integrated community college in your son's experience. And if if our big worry is that our kids are behind and our worry about the being behind is that they won't be able to do college level work. then they're just, I told someone the other day, there is no spoon. We're like, we're back to the matrix. They're just, there is no spoon. There's no behind. I I keep saying to friends, like I have a lot of friends right now who are considering homeschooling temporarily because virtual school is just not working for their kids. And I have other friends who are, you know, the time off from school really agreed with their kids. And now they're feeling panicked about whether that means they should send them back or not, or whether they should consider homeschooling. So I have these conversations quite often, and there's so much fear and there's so much anxiety. And, you know, what I keep saying to people is, of course, every kid is different. 
And of course, every time you do this, it feels like a giant experiment and nobody wants yeah. to get that experiment wrong. But if I had known when I pulled my son from school in third grade that he'd be 15 with, I think now he has 15 or 16 college credits and a 4.0 GPA and yeah. loving, loving taking those classes and excited to enroll in them and, you know, asking for more and also wanting to learn things at home and he was not a kid who was pulled from school and sat down at the kitchen table for seven hours a day and drilled on facts and, and pushed through some kind of structured curriculum that felt overwhelming to him, you know? So I, if I could have seen this kid when he was nine, it would have made all those years so much easier. And, And like for my friends who know my kids, you know, I, I keep kind of gently pointing out, like they seem okay, right? Like they're really curious, engaged learners. They're happy people. They're, they're independent thinkers. They know themselves. Like they have a lot of agency. I love that I can put that out into the world and say, like, it, you don't have to panic because your kid's not in school. Yeah. Um, and, and at the same time, you know, I get it. It's, it's, one thing I learned early as a homeschooler is that we, most parents, were socialized to believe that school is how education happens, right? Like most yeah. of us went to school. And so we have a lot of ideas in our head about what that's supposed to look like and a lot of fear about what if we're not providing that, what's that going to look like? And it is a little bit of a leap of faith. But if you look around, I always say to people who are unsure, like talk to a, talk to a homeschooled teenager, like talk to, yeah. you know meet some kids who have been educated this way and just keep talking to them because it will, it will give you some hope that this big experiment is actually not so scary. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because homeschooler after homeschooler I talk to and I say, you know, what do you wish you'd known or, or what would you have done differently? I'll often ask that question and to a person, and I am absolutely first in line in this is my fear of failure or screwing up the kids led me to be too much like school and too rigid. And it's so funny that that's actually what failure looks like. Failure doesn't look like loosening up and it, and it doesn't look like learning to go with the flow or trusting or like all the things that we're all sort of running away from. Failure looks like what we were running towards we were running away it it looks like oh god we've got to get another three days of writing in because you're not writing enough that's that turns out to be the thing that we all look back on and go oh that was a phase that didn't matter right I always look at like you know I I don't want to have to account for the like beautiful sunny day that we all sat at the table and drilled spelling words right like (laughs) I don't I don't want to I feel like that's not I can't answer for that in the same way that I can answer for we went on a bike ride because it was gorgeous out and we needed to move and we learn better later when we do that. And I, I think that that's the, um, yeah, the, the, in the very beginning, I made that mistake in the very beginning. I thought, how am I going to cram in six hours a day of school? How am I going to prepare at night for all these subjects? And I learned very fast, like this is not making anybody happy. I've said to a lot of friends, like if you're going to do that, you might as well do virtual school or you might as well send them to school when it's safe to send them back. Because if they tolerate that well, and that's what you want for them, why recreate the wheel? Why why do that? Right. Whereas, you know, if you're looking for something different, 
you know, I think that the biggest, the biggest thing I've reflected back on is that, you know, most of school is less about what you're learning and more about learning how to learn, right? Like, mm. what do you, how do you follow an inquiry? How do you look into something you're interested in and, and study it and ask questions and, you know, be able to write down your ideas and things like that. And so, you know, I look back on what units I studied in elementary school. I remember almost nothing about those topics, but I do remember like, so, so when I think about my kids, it's not so much about what we're learning. It's like the lesson is in how we're learning it. How are we approaching it? Who are we talking to about it? What are their resources? Like the questions you were asking earlier. Yeah. So I've never felt like I needed to say in third grade, they study anatomy. So we have to do anatomy in third grade or, you know, I feel like that that's not, it's not a productive way for my family to approach it, and, you know. Something that really helped me work educationally with three very different kids, different in their thought patterns, different in their talents, different in their outlooks on life, were the Howard Gardner books. He wrote a book called Frames of Mind in 1983. He wrote Multiple Intelligences in 1993. He's written a number of things. And he is known as the inventor, I guess, of the concept of multiple intelligences. And multiple intelligences is this beautifully accepting way of looking at other human beings as valuable. As one of my guests said beautifully, in their fullness, in ourselves, in our fullness. School only looks at one or two metrics, really, truly. Like, you may take Latin, you might take music, you might take art history, any of those things, chemistry. But really, it's the classic, reading, writing, and arithmetic. And if you are not up to what the school considers reading level, any deviation from that you will feel deep shame about if you are quite literally using the word failing but not in the kind you learn from just failing to achieve those things nobody really works with you through any other intelligence in most schools and i'm not saying that they should necessarily because maybe they can't 32 kids and not enough funding Maybe that's an impossible ask, but when you homeschool, you absolutely can. Howard Gardner is a developmental psychologist who worked at the Harvard Graduate School of Education and developed this theory of multiple intelligences that we all have several different ways of processing information and that these ways that we process information are reasonably independent. This is very different than the standard intelligence theory, which says that IQ is a measurement, that it is a reasonably static measurement, and that it only accounts for like linguistic and logical and spatial abilities. Gardner identified eight major intelligences, linguistic, logical, mathematical, musical, spatial, bodily, kinesthetic, interpersonal, intrapersonal, and naturalistic. And then some others, some others have gotten added on to existential is one of them and pedagogical, the ability to teach others. What I loved about Gardner is he 
has steadfastly refused to allow these to be tested. I do not believe in personality tests. In fact, I am adamantly against them, and I certainly am against them for children. You may think you have a lock on a child's personality or on another human being's personality, but as I've been talking about this whole hour, you do not have a lock on their context at this minute. They are going to be different with a position, someone with a position of authority if they're triggered by authority. They're going to be different with a peer. It's always context-driven, and it may be driven by whether they ate today, whether they've been sleeping well, whether they're about to get sick, whether they're recovering. And by the way, that is grace that should be extended to ourselves as well. Our personality is not fixed. Under enough stress, with enough things that go wrong, human beings are known to snap. So rather than fix someone in a personality especially one that is essentially fictional, where somebody made up a bunch of possibilities and then applied them. It's much more useful to say what are tendencies and then give people the grace of you're not usually like this or this seems to be something you're learning or to yourself, this is something that I'm learning or I usually was like this and I'm finding myself able to change. So, Instead of this fixed personality idea, the eight intelligences aren't really testable. That's actually run into some problems. In fact, a lot of people have considered Howard Gardner's theories to be discredited because you can't test them. I believe in the scientific method, but in social sciences with human beings who are messy and meat-based I think all bets are off. There's no way, just like averages, there's no way to fix us to a numerical set of standards. So the entire application of the multiple intelligences is very different, and it's very interpersonal. What you do with them is you look at those eight kinds of intelligences, and you look at, you review your relationship with this kid, and you talk to them. And you talk about what feels like the best way to learn. So with my kids, and two of them had learning disabilities when they were in elementary school, the answer to how do you best learn for one of them was by getting outside and putting things down in big ways and measuring them and running around them so kinetically, kinesthetically. That was the best way for her to learn. My youngest daughter, who also had a learning disability, what is the best way for you to learn? And for her, it was much more introspective and small motor. So now that I knew that, I could provide ways in which they could learn. And what I did was, look, if that's the way you best learn, then let's make a world where you learn best. So that doesn't mean that we didn't work on math. But when we worked on math, I tried to do it through something that was an easier way to learn so that they didn't always feel like we were ramming through something that was in a difficult manner to learn. And that's really the difference. Oh, let me try this. Maybe you process really well musically. So that means let's do everything through song. Let's, let's, have, you, let's have you do your math through music. Very easy to do. The word measure is the word measure on purpose because 
Music is mathematical. And by the way, interesting footnote, before he was a musical prodigy, Mozart was a math prodigy. And there are accounts, firsthand accounts from friends of his parents of walking in to the house and seeing that he had taken a piece of coal or pencil or something and written mathematics all over every available surface. And that was before the age of four or five. Granted, he's a special case, but he was taking things in mathematically long before he was able to read or even particularly speak well, certainly long before he could truly write. Are we qualified to put a box over our kids and dampen their gifts? Do we have any right to do that? The kids we bring into the world and raise are, as it's such a cliche, but they are, in fact, and they embody the future. So who are we to make that future a sad one? Who are we to make that future one that has this huge burden of shame, a huge burden of not being enough. Why? Because you didn't fit into an averages-based system. And because the system and the people involved did not give you proper context or did not give you a flexible context or did not understand that there was context involved and where you were great in one thing might mean you needed work in another. So if you need work in another, you try as hard as you can to Put that work through the filter of something you're great at when possible. And I have to tell you, you don't have to be perfect at this. Any attempt at using that continuum of you look at the eight different intelligences or the 10 different intelligences, you work with your kid and you kind of put them on a scale of one to 100, one to 10. How high are you? Well, you're higher, you're higher in your interpersonal, like when you talk to other people, you're higher in your interpersonal skills, but you hate being alone. So you're intrapersonal, the one where you sort of self-examine, that's going to be a bit lower than that. So you figure that out together. And then you work on skills, you work on learning, you work on various learning by leveraging the things that come sort of naturally, happily to you in order to work on the things that do not as much. It is incredibly liberating to look at the world this way. It's incredibly forgiving to look at the world this way. The world is just as much this way. Reality works just as much like this as it does in the one we're so used to from our own background, unquestioned, from our kids' backgrounds, unquestioned, from our friends, our family, media, of you passed or you flunked this grade, you're good or you're not good, you didn't meet an average, and therefore you failed. That is a very punitive system. It's a factory-based system, it's a punitive system, and it is only one of a number of possible realities. And I know that the reality that I not only participated in and created, but also truly enjoyed, was one that really said you're a lot of things. You're not just these couple of metrics and then failing at an average. Also, if you exceed that average, what does that tell you about what you have learned? Nothing. 
what you do with an average means nothing. What you do based on what you knew coming in, that's meaningful. Your starting point and your ending point are what are important. Your accomplishments versus somebody else are incredibly deceiving and ultimately undermine your ability to be a completely self-actualized person because you end up seeking validation from others to tell you that you're good enough. And if you're not seeking direct validations from others to tell you that you're good enough, and most of us do because that's the system we grew up in, you often are telling yourself as an adult that you don't measure up to someone else. And that way of thinking is incredibly destructive to you as a person. People who really succeed, and I don't mean have a lot of money necessarily, and I don't mean, you know, take over a lot of companies or whatever. Success is really about being aligned with your purpose, being able to find satisfaction in that purpose, a way of living with that purpose. So yes, money is involved. I'm never against that. It is a piece of what we do for value. But in a way where you provide value to the world, you get value from the world, and you are at peace with yourself, that is never accomplished by looking at other people and putting yourself on a scale of pass or fail. And I just rhymed that. It was almost like a little piece of beat poetry. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, to access show notes, find resources, and join the conversation. Thanks for listening.